0: Hello, hello. Welcome to the 17th instalment of the Threadwork podcast with me, your dutiful host, Ross Cale. Thank you so much for choosing to listen. It is appreciated. For those of you who are new to the podcast, as a few of you may well be given the hugely exciting guest I have, more on which later, then let me quickly say that Threadwork is an excuse to play wonderful records and sometimes talk to fascinating people about their unique relationship to music in an attempt to find out what it is that links together all the music that they love. There's a fuller explanation in the episode 0 Primer, which goes into a bit more detail, and is only about two and a half minutes long. Check it out if you so wish. Since the last episode, I managed to get along to a really great gig at Rough Trade here in Bristol, South West England. I was particularly excited about this gig because I was as hyped to see the support act as I was the main act, which isn't a scenario that comes around too often. Headlining was BC Camplight, who were touring with his, or their, latest album, the excellent Deportation Blues, and he, or they, were just great. It was one of those gigs that made me appreciate the source material so much more after the event, which I guess in some ways sounds like damning with faint praise, but I can only assure you is not the case. Rather, there was a wild-eyed energy to the live experience that I hadn't discerned so clearly in the recorded versions, but I can now retroactively apply. All of which is to say that they were great, as was the support band Penelope Isles, who I've raved about on a previous episode of the podcast. Penelope Isles don't have a great deal of recorded material available, but what is there to be heard is all of a high quality, and I recommend that you seek it all out on Bandcamp when you have the time. I was lucky enough to catch up with them for a pre-set chat for the podcast too, which will be made available in the new year, a little closer to their debut LP release for Bella Union. It was a charmingly ramshackle chat as you'll hear in due course, and suffice to say that they made a wonderful din live too. I was grinning from ear to ear throughout, so check them out if they're passing through your town. Okay, on to this episode's guest, and I am overjoyed to say that I got a chance to sit down with Colleen Cosmo Murphy, who was kind enough to give me an hour or so of her time for the podcast. For those that don't know, Colleen is a DJ, producer, broadcaster, journalist, label owner, audiophile and the driving force behind Classic Album Sundays, which offers a space to listen to classic albums on vinyl on a world-class sound system that, I can attest firsthand, offers a depth of audio fidelity I have never experienced before. Classic Album Sundays has grown since its relatively humble beginnings in London in 2010 into a global listening party operating on multiple continents. The scope of guests and experts that have contributed to the Classic Album Sunday project is staggering, with the likes of Jarvis Cocker, Jars Peterson, The Orb, Paloma Faith, Nick Mason, and dozens more all taking part. Head to ClassicAlbumSundays.com for more info, archives of previous events, and listings for upcoming projects. I spoke to Colleen back in September 2018 at her East London home, sitting amongst her thousands of vinyl records and sipping coffee kindly made by her husband Adam, who himself is a DJ with Trojan Sound System. It was a real honour to be able to talk to someone who I had such respect for beforehand and even more so after when you hear just how entrenched in music she has been for pretty much her entire life. She was as open, engaging and forthcoming a guest as I could possibly have hoped for, and so, without further ado... Here we are with episode 17 of the Threadwork podcast with Colleen Cosmo-Murphy. Cheers. So first question, if it's all right, is Mm -hmm. when did you first become aware of music?
1: Oh, I was aware of music from a very early age. I had a big family with very young aunts and uncles who were teenagers. And so I heard music a lot because we were quite a close-knit family, all growing up in the same small New England town. But my first... Musical experience that I remember clear as day was I was in my uncle John's bedroom by myself, and he had all those ultraviolet blue lights in his room that were on, and these, you know, glow in the dark posters. This is like early 1970s. And the transistor radio was on. And this was at a time when I still believe there were people in the radio singing so it's very much a child early childhood memory and i heard this bass line come on new And this song was so, well, now I would use the word psychedelic, but I didn't know what that word was at the time. Um, But it really stuck with me was David Essex, Rock On, and such a great song. And I just remember it just really feeling the music because it was unlike anything else I had heard. I also remember riding around in my Uncle Dennis's red convertible with him and blasting out the Beatles as well. Um, So this was all
0: early 1970s. And was that, um, so was there lots of different musical influences within your family or...
1: Well, within my family, mainly the my aunts and uncles who were teenagers or early 20s probably had the most influence on me musically. My aunt, Teresa, is only eight years older than me, and she was into Bowie and Elton John. I think she gave me my first album, Elton John's Greatest Hits, when I was on my eighth birthday. Uh, my uncles, uh, John and Brian, had a bit more standard taste, but... Uh, Brian, I used to babysit for his son and he had, his roommate had a huge record collection that I used to raid and had everything in there. My uncle Dennis was probably the most formative because he lived just down the street from me. And when I got my own turntable in my own room, I used to go raid his record collection. And I still have his copy of Moody Blues, The Days of Future Past. I never gave it back. <laughs> and, <laughs> but he was, you know, it's kind of more classic rock. My aunt Pauline had more esoteric tastes. She's the one that turned me on to Kate Bush. And, and Kate Bush in the 1970s in the States, she was not very big at all. It wasn't until Hounds of Love came out that she made any kind of impression in the U.S., um, so that was quite esoteric. I got Lionheart. I remember looking through her, rec- her records, which was a selection of Bitches Brew to ABBA. Uh, and then this I saw this woman like crawling in, a, in an attic. I was like, wow, that looks amazing. I just have to hear it, you know, it's just because of the album cover. My dad was kind of middle-aged, even though he was 21 when he had me, but he was just much more... Now I realize he was just more into melody. He loved great singers, but he had more kind of -of middle-of-the-road tastes and then got into classical a bit later. So we didn't really have a lot of music sources in my actual house where I was growing up, but there was enough around me. And then when I was was lucky, because I grew up outside of Boston, and we had so many college radio stations, and and Boston really had some of the best radio in the country, uh, because even commercial radio. Um, I grew up with WBCN, which was an an, uh, album-oriented rock station, but it had a really great radio show on Sunday nights called Nocturnal Emissions by Oedipus who is also the program director and who I later ended up working with when in my 20s but uh, on radio but that was very formative as well because this is pre-internet so I had to really listen to radio shows or record them to learn new music.
0: So why, why, what do you think what made the uh, radio show uh, the radio stations in that area so good what was what distinguished them?
1: Well, we had a lot more freedom. I think WBCN in particular, I felt like they had a lot more freedom. I think their audience was more open-minded. So Massachusetts is a more liberal kind of area. Of course, when you have a lot of college students, they're a lot more open-minded as well. And WBCN used to be a, a classical radio station when it started, but in 1968, which I'm not afraid to say is the year I was born, also the year that Astral Weeks was recorded because Van Morrison was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. There was a lot happening in Boston in 1968. And uh, there was a really great venue called the Boston Tea Party. And in fact, the Velvet Underground played there more than they did at Max's Kansas City. So they were—it was almost like they had a residency there. There's a lot of like alternative kind of cu- counterculture happening in Boston, Massachusetts. So BC- WBCN sprang out of that kind of ethos and that kind of mindset. So it was just a much more, much more free. Whereas if, maybe if you had a, a station in, in a Cincinnati, Ohio. They might not be playing to an audience that wanted as diverse a musical array of a, a as diverse an array of music. So we were afforded that opportunity, and I just think people were a lot more open-minded there. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, things are now different. You listen to WBCN now; it's dire. But um, at that time, in the in the 70s and early 80s, it was it was really great.
0: Were you listening to radio in the house a lot? I mean, was there a point where you were kind of... So so if there wasn't music going on in your house from your parents per se, as in lots and lots of stuff going on, and then you're having this kind of voyage of discovery yourself where you're getting things from your uncles and your aunts, was there a kind of point where it's like, I need... I need a radio now or I need a turntable
1: absolutely I got my first radio when I was 7 at Christmas I ran upstairs plugged it in and Fly Robin Fly came on by Silver Convention I'll never forget that moment these are all formative moments my father gave me a hand-me-down GE Trimline portable turntable when I was about 11, 12 and that went into my bedroom and that became the fixture and that's when I started really getting into albums then I got a a slightly better system nothing like what I have now still pretty it was you know pretty bad. It was like a a tape deck and a turntable and a tuner. And I was in my room all the time listening to music. And then if no one was around, I would go into the living room and play piano and put records on and try to figure out the songs on piano. Um, But I listened to music all the time. We did play music a lot in the car with my parents. And there is one formative experience. We used to go to museums or drives or whatever on Sundays. And there was a syndicated radio show on that was an oldies show so it'd be like late 50s rock and roll to 1960s pop and rock and roll by a DJ who is called Artie Woo Woo Ginsburg I think really Artie right. Woo Woo Ginsburg and so I, mean, I can remember the jingle Artie Woo Woo Ginsburg <laughs> it was great and so I actually know all of those songs like you know whether it's Wooly Bully or I mean like some of the real novelty songs to all the great girl groups um, and also Wolfman Jack was still on too so, yeah, so I used to listen to them with my parents in the car. So it was kind of the music from their childhood and teenage years, basically, that we would listen to. And actually, my first radio show I had when I was 14 was on our 10 Watt High School station. My first radio show was that music, yeah. added in with the 60s rock and early 70s rock that I was borrowing from my uncle Dennis. And then after that my tastes got a lot more um alternative and, yeah, and sure. diverse after that
0: i had so funny enough i had something very similar growing up we, we used to listen to a station there was a proper commercial pop radio station called capital i think it's still going today oh, yes yeah but there was a time and that used to be on the am dial and then there was a point at some time in the maybe mid to late 80s or something like that they were like right cool capitals moving to fm and the show they used to do on the weekends called capital gold that's now going to become the station. Capital Gold was exactly what you were saying there. It's just like fifties to uh, late seventies and stuff along those lines. So mm. I'm exactly the same. There's so much of that stuff that you'll just hear anything. I'm like, I know this, and yeah. I know all of this deeply backwards and forwards. I know all of these, all these story songs, Boy Named Sue, all of these like real yes, heartbreaking story songs, songs. They really are as well. Cause never go, well, I tell you what, I'm going to go and put on this.
1: I've been obsessed with Desert Island Discs recently, and listening to it, and Kirsty Young, and and then I I love some of the music choices. I can't remember who it was. It may have been Annie Lennox, I believe. Wichita Lineman. Oh, my, oh, you listen my to it, and you just want to cry. It's amazing. It is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a song that is. Yeah. I mean, that just brings you somewhere. And it makes every time you hear it, you really, you know, or uh, anyway, so I can get into loads of music like that as well. But yeah, it's incredible. And those songs will just stay with you. I am a lineman for the county.
0: And I drive the main road Searching in the sun
1: For another overload
0: I hear you singing in the wire I can hear you through the wine And
1: the tall line
0: Still on the
1: I've been listening to Chardé recently because our classic album Sunday's album of the month is Stronger Than Pride. And I I bought Diamond Life when it came out. I was obsessed with it. I used to listen to it in my bedroom. I was like, I want to get to London. I must go to London. I was listening to that and Avalon. You know, rock yeah, music yeah. over and over. Very romantic music. I had this very. Rom- I was also listening to a lot of the Mancunian bands, of course, like Joy Division and old, then New Order and The Smiths and everything as well. But I had this very romantic image of London. Then I list, you know, then I bought the the next one. Was it uh, has paradise on it? Promise and um, stronger than pride. And it's interesting, so I've been listening to the albums and realizing I know, I still know all of the lyrics, all of the melodies, everything.
0: And do you think that's because my working theory, and it's not particularly uh, you know um, novel or anything, is because. As a kid, you're just like everything's on absorb mode. Mm-hmm. So just naturally, you, you just remember. Oh, sorry, it's just get, it, everything gets embedded, and because you're hearing it at that age, it's just in there and it's stuck. Whereas as we get maybe get older, it's harder and harder to remember the details or something along like those lines.
1: Yeah, it's probably also we more distracted. Yeah, my daughter um, is thirteen, and she hears a song and knows the lyrics instantly. She is quite incredible. She's very musical, mm-hmm. um, but. I think we just get more and more distracted. Last night I listened to, I was going through old audio notes uh, and I was listening to albums. I listened to four albums I realized by the time I'd finished. The latest John Coltrane, the hidden one. That oh, yeah, was, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember. Actually, it's right here. What is it called? Oh, really? It's called. Um, the Lost Album, Both Directions at Once. Uh, what else? Actually, here's my playlist from last night. I'll pull it out. Uh, jazz Samba, Stan Getz and Charlie Bird, Nina Simone. Um, Nina, Nina Simone sings the blues, and a, another Miles Davis and John Coltrane album, The Final Tour. I listened to four albums while I was working, and I can't say I really absorbed it because I was doing something else. And I just really. When I, when I was growing up and listening to records, I wasn't doing anything else. I really was just sitting there. <laughs> Sometimes I might be trying to figure out the piano part um, on the piano, but I, still I was completely 100% tuned in. I wasn't talking on the phone. I wasn't working on a computer. Of course, you know, as I got older, and had to do homework. I might have music on in the background. But when I was listening to these albums in general, I was just sitting there and singing all the words mm-hmm. or making them up, especially with Cocteau Twins. And um, I was just completely 100% tuned in. And it's one of the reasons I started Classic Album Sundays, yeah. for that very reason, to give people a, a space in which to not be distracted. Um, and to completely tune into the music.
0: It's like an audio version of the cinema.
1: Absolutely, and the cinema. I used to, I still do hate it when people are talking. Yeah. I don't get that. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to make a little comment to your friend about the about the movie, but people, some people, are talking at the top of their lungs.
0: I, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a into a, into a bitch fest by show's mm-hmm. imagination. I find that in gigs as well, in concerts. You go and you you know. I'm too, you know, I can't go to really loud rock gigs anymore mm. and stuff like that. So the artists I tend to go to be quieter or no, not even so much quieter, but, you know, I prize fidelity of sound over necessary noise. Mm-hmm. And you've got people just like sitting chatting away behind That's you. That's incredible.
1: Like, I've yeah. had to tell people off at a Dylan concert, uh, which could be about a year and a half ago. And I recently did it at the BBC proms as well <laughs> i just finally just but turned I, place and place. I had to wait i had to wait between pieces obviously because it's like a 17 minute piece are <laughs> <But the laughs> the the like, just like it's oh. unreal <laughs> it's like why are you here
0: yeah.
1: why why ball. even like, go chat, i ball. don't get it it's like i don't get it, how people can do that it's, especially in a public space fine if you're listening to something at home of you know but uh, or watching something on, at home but when you're in a public space just to be that inconsiderate of other people's feelings and, and experiences it's, it's it floors me it's very strange absolutely floors me and it's interesting so when I started Classic Album Sundays you know I had to tell a few people every now and then sh- but it got to the point where I never did. It was, it was the other people, the attendees, that did it, which was amazing because it just let me off the hook. Now I don't need to. I mean, it, the word got out. was uh, that you know. And I think people. And I mean, if you if you don't want to sit and listen quietly, just don't come. Basically, <laughs> if it's not for you, fair enough. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Cool. That's totally fine. Yeah, yeah. Um but the people that do want to that's why they're there. Yeah. You know? So absolutely. they're there
0: totally totally great.
1: Too bad we don't have those audiences everywhere.
0: Well, quite abso- absolutely. But I guess it's nice if you put it on the, you know, put it almost put it on the ticket to a certain extent just going, look this is what it is. Mm. Exactly as you say. If, if if you want to come and have a chat then like maybe just, just the album on at home and have a chat and have some people yeah. around or something it's not bad that's, that's not that is not a bad thing right. it's not like you are lesser than just, yeah and it's not like this only... is for that yeah and this is for exactly. that. exactly
1: And there's, there's more than one way one way to listen to music so i mean of course we have an amazing hi-fi so you can hear details you've never heard before it's a certain situation that we present a certain context but I listen to music while I'm working. I listen to music in the car. I talk over... I mean, there's all different ways to listen to music, but what we're doing is offering an experience that you probably couldn't replicate at home. Yeah, definitely. Um, so especially with... Not only with the equipment, but the story behind it, and just also the communal listening aspect. You know, I, I worked in a record shop. My first my first proper after-school job uh, was in a record shop, and I started collecting quite early. And... Uh, I'd have friends from the neighborhood come by and we'd listen to records together in my room. Yeah. yeah you know, parents knocking on the door. What's going on in there? Especially if there was boys, yeah, but. Sure <laughs> we're listening. I know. <laughs> I know. We're listening. Yeah, exactly. But um, it's, uh, I still enjoy doing that today. In fact, it's so funny. One of my old friends, Scott Adams, who's my long, the friend I've had the longest. He's We've known each other since we are 12 my daughter and i were staying with he and his family in new york this summer and my daughter wanted to buy this album by daniel caesar and you can either stream it or it's on vinyl so she had to buy the vinyl and she found a copy in new york city so we went back to scott's place after and the three of us sat and listened to the entire album beginning to end really with very little chatter (laughs) so it was really fun and such a great album
0: i mean so with so with your daughter obviously has that happened naturally or is she just like oh well this is how you know mom listens to to tunes i guess
1: probably a bit of both i think you know i the room that we're sitting in now um i used to do radio shows from japan here and i remember putting her in that little corner in there in her car seat you know and it was house music some of it and you know it was like the mixing or whatever and she could fall asleep listening to it. She's heard music her whole life. Of course, my husband, her father is a DJ as well and in the music business and he does Trojan sound system. Um, so music has been all around her, but she also has an innate talent. And uh, you know, she can sing. She has perfect I, I have perfect pitch as well. She has perfect pitch as well. She's doing music GCSE. She plays trumpet, guitar, keyboards and she's a f- fabulous singer. Much much better than I am. Uh, but she has an, you know, you have an innate ability. She has an innate ability too. It's, but um, she can remember lyrics and the correct lyrics much better than I ever could. I've always sung the wrong, the wrong things, and she says mom that's not how it goes they're singing this okay if I make up my own words I'm a little bit more tuned into my head I think and she's more tuned into what the musician's actually doing
0: (laughs) (laughs) so so you you said you 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 played uh, piano or you used to try and figure things out on the piano was that a formal kind of training I was
1: actually took organ lessons from the age of nine um and then we got a piano and I preferred the piano so I never really took piano lessons sadly but that piano, my dad, it was a piano my dad had gotten. He had refurbished. It's at my sister's house. Now, we were there this summer. And uh, Ariana really got back into playing. And I got back into playing a little bit, too. Just still, I mean, for me, it's just if I can accompany myself uh, on something. Or I, I knew I was never going to be a pianist. Um, I used to sight read very well especially on Oregon where you have three, you have the pedals as well. So you have to sight read three, three different uh, parts at the same time. And I I could do that quite well. I can't do that very well at all anymore. But you know, when I was making music, I was able to at least write songs and I was able to at least do basic chord work and very simple, simple, simple keyboard lines. But if I needed something proper, I'd get in a proper session musician right. to do it. Sure. Yeah. So, Excellent. Yeah.
0: So can we talk about your radio show growing, growing up and stuff? You're sure. fourteen year old. I'm, I'm, you know, like most people, or certainly if those those us with an affinity to things, I adore radio. Radio's yeah. just been, you know, a constant through ever. Um, so, so how did your radio show come about? And
1: well, the first radio show I had, well, I was really lucky. Um, we had a small ten watt radio station just off the library of our high school. In fact, my uncle Brian was one of the people. To helped put that radio station together uh, in the early 1970s. So by the time I got there, I was 14, it was 1982. And, um, you know, growing up in a small town, all my aunts and uncles <laughs> got to the same school, basically. And my cousins afterwards. So... Um, I was—I had a different cousin, actually, who was uh, in a third cousin from my mother's side, uh, who was in the same year as me, uh, and she and a friend Eric, so it was my cousin Rachel Anderson, and her friend Eric Ewers had a radio show starting freshman, they were both freshmen, we were all freshmen in high school, and they invited me up one day, and I said, oh, yeah, I'll come along. They knew I was into music. And I literally went to live mic and I ran out of the studio and ran into the library like, ah! I, mean, I mean, there's probably five people listening, you know, like our friends. <laughs> uh, but after that, I really got a bug for it. And so then it en- ended up Rachel and I doing the radio show. And then the following year, I did a show with... Um, uh, another friend Andy and he was really into more like Elvis Costello I started to really branch out of my taste mm. sex pistols B52s just really getting into something different and the following year I had another show with my friend Mary Caruso. Called punk funk and junk because we were getting into early hip hop. I know, I know, wow. I know. <laughs> really my good. friend just designed me a t-shirt for that. He's like, you really should do t-shirts. In fact, Mary and I did do sweatshirts. We had punk funk and junk, bright yellow shirts, and then that's where I got the name Cosmo uh, because there was a electro band called nucleus and their dj's name was cosmo yeah. so i thought i'll be cosmo and her name was remix <laughs> so you lucked out on
0: that half of the <laughs> draw then basically
1: <laughs> so we'd rock around our high school in new england with she had remix you know written on the her sweatshirt on the back my had cosmo <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. and then my last year that's by the time but now when i was 17 i was already had been working in a record shop and my taste had really become more diverse where I was into psychedelic rock and everything. And I worked at a record shop called Strawberries after school. I had a morning show in the morning three days a week called Strawberry Alarm Clock, like the band that did Incense and Peppermints. So it's kind of double entendre. Worked at Strawberries Records, was really into 60s psychedelia too at that time, the 60s pop. I I, I played everything on that show, including day I think. I just, anything that was... Different that wasn't getting played on the radio. I mean, our the rest of the programming was all classic rock and top forty. That was the only one that had a different show, and someone had a Christian rock show for a wow. bit. So that was that was it. All yeah, ba- all bases covered. You know <laughs> all what I mean? bases covered. Yeah, so I had a lot. Yeah, so it was it was it was great though. And it, when I decided to go to university, I picked the university through its radio station. Brilliant. So, so did you
0: know that, you know, this was it? I mean, I'm. I'm it sounds like a bit of a redundant question, mm-hmm. but, you know, for, for given how deeply entrenched you were in music and growing up and everything, was it just like, well, th- this is where I'm going. This is what I'm doing.
1: Well, it's interesting because I don't think I ever really had an object in mind. Mm-hmm. It was always very much the present. So I was like, this is what I'm doing now.
0: Good.
1: And I never really thought like, oh, do I want to be a radio DJ on commercial radio but I did pick uh, my university uh, through its radio station I ended up going to New York University I had to get out of Massachusetts just and open up my horizons a bit more Um, and of course had the allure of new york city and wnyu was one of the biggest college radio stations at the time i went up to the station the first week i was there i became psa director public service announcement director immediately and i just became entrenched there I became a fixture and I became the first female program director uh, a couple years later as well and so I had loads of different radio shows even including radio drama I did radio drama as well and I I used to as a, a teaching assistant in the sound department um, and you know I was editing tape basically it was all taped then this is the late 80s so I learned to edit on tape taught other people how to edit on tape learned how to use a mixing desk uh, and yeah, that came in very handy because my next job when I graduated after traveling was um, was producing syndicated radio shows. So and that was all on tape. Yeah. <laughs> all the interviews were done on tape. So if I interviewed Joy Ramon and every other like twice in a sentence, he would say, "You know what I mean? You know what I mean?" I'd have to it. I'd have to actually edit out half of those on tape.
0: <laughs> so for those that are less less um used to that process, mm. what what does that mean? Because we we're, we're so used today to just you know cut a little files on the screen, sure. There you go off it. You know.
1: Well, basically, you would have a you would put it on the. You'd have to grab each side of the tape reel and you go and get the position so the beginning of the word which you're still pretty much doing whether it's in logic or whatever it's just you're doing this manually Mm -hmm. but it's still the same thing like do you keep the breath in or like and certain consonants are very difficult and some are very easy Mm -hmm. a t is really easy to edit but a can be difficult, especially if it goes into something else. And it yeah. depends on how much people enunciate and how much, how quickly they speak and how slowly they speak. But what you would do is you'd get that spot where you want to edit. You take your grease pencil and on that, on the record, on the on the playback head, you would mark that spot. You would loosen up the tape so you have a bit of slack. You put it onto the editing block, which would have like two or three different kinds of shapes. You usually wanted an angle though, to make it sound better rather than a straight cut. You would you would make your marks, you'd cut out the, the offending piece of tape, <laughs> put it back together with a bit of uh, uh, editing tape. And you're trying to make sure you don't get, touch the tape too much because you get your, the oils, yeah, would get onto the tape itself. And then you'd go back and you'd see if you did a good edit. I'd have to do music beds, and sometimes you'd get pieces of tape on there that were backwards, and you realize how you know right. you, because you'd have tape around all hanging all over the place, like all over the reel to reel around your neck. I mean, there's sometimes it would be quite, uh, quite a fiasco. Um, but yeah, it was it was great. It yeah. was really great. It's it was a really skill. It's, it's a real sc- skill. Yeah. I miss it yeah. actually. I that miss it.
0: Kind of hands-on uh, element. Huh? Yeah.
1: Absolutely. so what
0: were you what were you listening to at that time what was what was you have know, moved moved from massachusetts you've moved to mm. new york your radio shows all over the place what was your soundtrack i then?
1: had a few different things so one i got really much more into 60s psychedelic rock and prog rock and stuff like electronic early electronic stuff um you know like silver apples or or craft I was also doing a radio show called The New Afternoon Show, which was the afternoon-evening drive show, which was a a real fixture in New York City and and the Triborough area at the time. So we were playing everything and interviewing all these bands too, from Cocteau Twins to Nirvana to Nick Cave and Sugar Cubes. I mean, all these bands were coming through because they didn't have any presence on commercial radio at the time. College radio was the only place. I mean, mm. college radio obviously had broken REM and U two, so they became went on to commercial radio. But this is still pre Nevermind. Nevermind, Nirvana's Nevermind just changed everything, and um, so the only place they could get any radio promo was on college radio, and we were one of the biggest college radio stations in the country and located in New York City. So all the bands coming through, the record companies were there as well. Oops. So we got everybody doing their interviews or live PAs. We were really, 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 really? lucky to be there. Um, so that was great. And then early, then, then I... Um, when I started doing the syndicated radio shows I mean I had Nirvana in the studio the week Nevermind came out many of us had the advanced cassette and we all knew god this is gonna change things you just kind of knew this sounds
0: like a strange question but because obviously you're exposed to so much different stuff loads of bands come through you're not gonna like everything yeah that's, that's just the way it goes again it's not saying that's not good that's good it's just taste yeah but were you really into that, that oh the yeah
1: that, really... yeah I was really into that scene I was really into that Seattle scene I was really into the butthole surfers big time um and really into Nick Cave really into all of that stuff and um yeah with nevermind I had them in the studio the day after their gig at the I think it was the marquee it was their last small gig in New York or smallish gig and then nevermind broke and it was just completely different But then at the same time, right around then, I started going to my friend David Mancuso's Loft Party, and then that opened up a whole other door to a whole other um, world of music, basically, that I hadn't really been aware of. I had... I had told you that, you know, I goes into electro and early hip hop and funk. My first gig that I went to was a Gap Band one ways, the Bar K's and Grandmaster Melly Mel, um, a funk fest. But it was more like funk. But and I knew and also in Boston, we had a really we had a couple really good funk and uh, funk and kind of dance radio stations. We had the major one, Kiss 108, which was Sonny Joe White. And they, he would play stuff like D-Train. So there was things that crossed over, You know, some of the prelude stuff that became commercial hits I heard on Boston radio. And Emerson and Brown University both had really good funk shows as well. So I could hear some of that. And also the Quiet Storm format was also taking off at that time as well. Sorry, what is that? Quiet Storm. It was kind of for, uh, you know, radio is still very racially divided in the United States. You had black radio and white radio, basically. Okay. Um, but for African-American radio stations, ones that were geared towards an African-American audience, some of them were gearing certain formats to what they perceived as, you know, socially, upwardly mobile African Americans and the Quiet Storm format would have been more the Luther Vandross, uh, the slower, the Angela, uh, uh, Anita Baker, uh, beautiful kind of romantic music that was really geared towards those people. I mean, Chuck D famously hated all of that. but I think there's a place for all of this. Yeah. But uh, he was not into that. He thought they were, he thought that R&B at that time and the, the quiet storm format was really not, it didn't address social progress or in any way. But I think for a lot of African-Americans, they felt like, we don't have, why, sh-? you know, we're, we need to, and not every African-American felt they needed to. I guess this is, same with women, it's like some women feel like they need to be outspoken feminists, and others like, I'm just gonna get on with it and get on with my life. And there's a viewpoint, there, there, there's a there's definitely a valid point to each way of thinking, I think. So, yeah, 100%. Mm. so you
0: mentioned uh, uh, David Mancuso, and I'm conscious obviously this gets mentioned a lot when people talk yeah. to you and what have you. But uh, how how did you come to me, and what, what, what happened?
1: Well, a friend of mine, Adam, um, brought me to his party. I think it's the late 91 or early 92 when he had kind of reopened. Uh, he had been on he had started on Broadway in 1970 then he moved to Prince Street. And then he had to leave Prince Street and he bought a new a new place on Third Street between avenues B and C and he reopened his party about 91 92 right when I started Going, it was like just pretty soon after he he opened, and I was just blown away because I was hearing music that I didn't know, you know, uh, and I thought I knew a lot, <laughs> but also I was hearing it on this great sound system that kind of ha- had all the nuance and the sonic detail and the and the emotion. Um, even something that sounded very simple really had a lot of depth, especially early house. Because you have to remember ni- the house music coming out in 91, 92 was quite simple in many ways. But it would sound, if it was the right kind of song, it sounded amazing on his system. And then all these other songs p- from people like Dexter Wenzel to to Tamiko Jones. Uh, you know, I'd never heard those songs before, and I was just really blown away. Um, and actually, I was so inspired that I wanted to do my own radio show with music from The Loft and I had found out later about the Paradise Garage because I, I moved to New York in 86 and the Paradise Garage closed in 87. I never went, so um, I just was discovering all of this music and basically there was a guy at the loft party the first time i went named john hall who was a record dealer and he remembered me from the 80s when i was uh, an intern at rockpool which was a trade magazine and i used to write record reviews but i used to also take in the dj charts and he was quite a big dj in new york city at the time and i'd taken his charts and he remembers seeing me when he would pick up his records they had a dj record pool and stuff so he recognized me from then And then I said to him like, what is this record? What is this record? What is this record? He said, well, why don't you work for me uh, and I'll pay you in records. So after my producing syndicated radio shows with, you know, entering Polly or the Buttholes or, you know, Nirvana or whomever I was entering Verve or whoever, in the evening I'd go, you know, organizing records again uh, and John would pay me in records. So that's how I started building that collection. And... I decided I wanted to do a radio show around this. And no one else really was in New York at the time with that kind of music. That seems hard to imagine, really, because it's
0: such a hot, you know, you know, so much was, well, it was emanating from from that area.
1: Absolutely. So you had John Robinson had a had a lunchtime mix, uh, but it was a bit more commercial. Commercial Dance Classics and Tony Humphries had a Saturday night show but he was playing more new stuff like all the TPs the test pressings so mine really fit a niche that didn't really exist so you know i i did play E2E4 in its entirety
0: wow all oh, 45 oh, minutes 45 brilliant. minutes
1: actually that was a day when i walked in and the t- one turntable only had one channel i said you know what E2E4. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And then I flipped it over. (laughs) Um, I don't think many people did that on the radio. I don't know if anyone else did that on the radio at the time. But then, in any case, I had this radio show, um, and I really wanted David to come up on it. So I asked John, John, I mean, David would see me, but I never really went up to him and spoke to him. I mean, he was playing music. And even if I was just sitting behind him for a while at you know 11 in the morning, I uh, still didn't talk to him, and he was—I could tell he was quite an introverted guy as well. And I'm not the kind of—I'm not a real chatterbox when I'm out. I, I'm more out because I want to hear the music, sure. and um, even if even if I'm not dancing, I'm just sitting and listening to it. Mm. So it's not—I don't talk my whole way through a night, uh, and. But i didn't really know him and so i asked john I said, john do you think you could ask him if introduce introduce me properly and see if you do my radio show and he made an inquiry and david said yeah well why don't you and i sing to me why don't we go out uh for a, a drink sometime first so we did and we went somewhere in the east village not far from where we both lived and i we started talking about synchronicity and music and it's something I have a lot of in my life. Synchronicity in so many different areas, but especially with music. In terms, both on the receiving end and on the giving end, I guess. So I remember like being on the radio and I'd have my two turntables and one turntable would be playing something and I'd have the, on the second turntable I'd have something queued up and ready to go. Phone would ring I'd ask the phone, hey, Cosmo, can you play this? And it actually would be already queued up. Like things like that would happen, but I would have the same. Like I'd, I'd be at the loft, and he, Dave would play something. I think, oh, you know, it'll go really well after this. And he, would, he'd, he'd put it on, you know. And this happens to me a lot. It happens to me a lot with people too. I'll think about a person and they phone, you know. It happen, It's just it's always happened to me. I think if you're open up to that, it happened to me three times yesterday. Three times. I thought of three different people. I hadn't thought of in a while. Connections. One just phoned me randomly. It was just. It happens to me all the time.
0: So I know this is getting away from music, but just to explore that a second, do you are you kind of not like? I don't want to use the wrong terminology. Are you quite open to those kind of ideas? That kind of fate, synchronicity, so yeah, that Yeah, absolutely. Of thing? Right. You have I to
1: know. be open to it. Interesting. Yeah, Amazing. I think it's it's absolutely. Yes, it's there. And I think you have to be open to it. And it just happens. It's always happened to me. And I'm sure it's happened to everyone. If you think about it too, like you learn a new word yeah, and all of a sudden you see that word everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, and then it's just, you have to acknowledge it, that this does happen. Yeah. I mean, you can call it coincidence, you could call it synchronicity, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Sure. Um, but David totally got that. And I think that's when he realized that we were on a similar... Um, wavelength. And so he came up to the radio show. He didn't want to speak though. He was he's so he was so shy. But he um, he did picked all the records, you know. In fact I was going through Was that some, a deal breaker?
0: Was that was that would you would you expect that? So yeah. so you've got someone who, you know, who has built, you know, their the whole concept I'm not to tell you this stuff but but from my own perspective built the whole concept of like I'm, I'm going to play the tunes and it's going to be this tune and it's going to be the best tune and this, is gonna be this tune going to be really good trust me was that kind of
1: yeah yeah no it was, it was fine for me because it, for him it was all about programming and the flow and he's a shy he was a shy guy I mean he was quite in some ways I mean he was very shy in some ways but in other ways he was really at well, least very real and, and, and straightforward but you know after someone passes away too whether it's your father, like my father, and you realize all their other connections kind of, not come out of the woodwork, but you realize how deep or how many connections they had, how many phone calls or visits visits they had with people you didn't realize they were in touch with or whatever, um, and so that, that was really, really quite beautiful when, when, when that does happen, like how much they touched other people's lives as well, I guess. But yeah, so that was kind of the start. In fact, it's kind of strange we're talking about this. I was going through and like, grab this folder. Uh, Last night I started going through all my old notes uh, for Lucky Clouds, <laughs> we started a party here when I moved here. Um, and after my friend Tim Morris' book came out and after David and I did the compilations for Newphonic, yeah, we, Sorry, the Lucky Cloud Party, and it was David who encouraged me to keep a log. Found some things from him. It's probably some of the old emails, but there's one thing I saw yesterday. It was just, where is it? Here it is. It's from David. It says Good, clean, and honest sound is a human right. <laughs> Uh, coffee spilled on the side there, but he used to love, he stayed in this room before too, but he, uh, used to, we, he would come over, we'd listen to records and the other room and just every week. Sentiment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. And it's made me think, you know, always just to remember remember that and really to get back in touch with that not that I have left it I guess what I do with classic Elm Sundays is all about that but just to remember uh, that we need to kind of preserve those ideals and that vision classic album Sundays I've discovered a lot of stuff too because you know people suggest albums and there were were albums that I kind of missed like you know around when my daughter was born I kind of I had you know I wasn't running out discovering new music for a bit of time unless it was actually just sent to me and that was it um but you know like music has the right to children somehow I missed that boards of Canada and we ended up doing this an album of the month um and then you are researching an album and you're trying to find out its musical context and so you start to discover maybe their influences or their contemporaries that were part of the same scene and things you hadn't discovered before or maybe this just artists that you kind of knew some of their songs you knew they were really great but you realized they have a classic album and you i did discover i and i still am discovering a lot through classic album sundays you know so That's really good. And and my next thing now is classical music. And I I put up a post on my uh, professional Facebook page, my Colleen Cosmo Murphy page. And I said, hey, I'm trying to learn more about classical music. And It was such a great thread. It was like one of the things that Facebook is made for. Everyone jumped in the conversation, offering up. Uh, their kind of recommendations and I've been starting every morning recently either with Desert Island Discs and going through the archives this morning with Stephen Hawking really interesting wow. uh, or one of these recommendations that people have, you know, have rec- uh, recommended classical composers or, or even performers but it's been really, really great
0: can i pull a thread through that a second Mm. because i'm interested uh, one of the things that um, was really noticeable from when i came to the orb thing was you seem to have an encyclopedic knowledge of music so if you think about all of the tones that youth and um, and alex were pulling together they were you know you had like a real um, you know beautifully uh, cosmic kind of Space rock, sort of thing, you had a techno tune, you had a jazz record, and what have you. And you just seem to know I appreciate there's research, but you seem to be just like, I don't know, this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this. And there's this. Mm-hmm. How much of that is uh, research? How much of that is knowledge?
1: Mm, that's a good question. Well, with the Orb, they have the same exact musical taste as me, so it's really easy with them because everything they wanted to do, I knew inside and out. Because we have, I remember when I first. Start playing the orb i'm going to have all the original pressings and david was playing it too and just knowing yeah yeah um, on the compilation yeah but he would play that at like 11 in the morning but me and my friends were buying all the orb stuff on import you know um i have limited editions of stuff as well but I knew when I first heard the UR, I'm like, mm, same musical sensibility, what they're sampling, they're sampling from Ricky Lee Jones. I mean, I listened to Ricky Lee Jones. I mean, I had a similar sensibility. And when I met, I met Alex, I interviewed Alex a long time ago um, in the 90s, but especially when I met youth last year and we did the, the Pink Floyd stuff at the VNA. I just knew that we were on the same musical trip. So with them, it was very easy. And a lot of it I do, I do know, but there are times when I do have to research as well. And I like that. I mean, uh, I really enjoy that actually. I, I like the journalistic side of it. I, you know, when I was doing radio, I always felt with my, my job in radio and also my job just in general is as a curator and an educator. And I think that's what I do. I'm a communicator. I'm an educator. I'm a curator. So whether if I'm DJing and I'm not actually communicating by speaking, it's still communicating through the music, but curation as well, I'll play a balance of some things that they might know to things they don't know. Uh, And similarly with my radio shows, when I do my radio shows, I talk about the artists or the record. So it's not just play the record and announce it. I just try to give it a context, a story. And Classic Album Studies goes even further. I mean, really, we really, really get into it. It's really get, dig deep into the albums. Um, but, yeah, there is some research. I mean, gosh, for National Album Week, I have an event nearly every single night, and I have a different guest. Katie Tunsell, then Paloma Faith, then Orbital, then Bobby Gillespie, then Ray Davies, then Thurston Moore. So... <laughs> I know, so it's wearing a different hat almost every time. Yeah, exactly. But I looked at it and it's like, looked. I listened to Paloma Faith's album yesterday. It's really great. And I looked at her influences. Like I know all those. In fact, I've interviewed some of those bands, like Arrested Development, who is a big influence on her. And you know, so that was really good. So sometimes, even if I don't know the artists as well and I need to study them, I'll know their context and, and what they're inspired by. And I think musical knowledge is something you just build as you go along yeah. as well. Yeah. So I expect in 10 years I'll, I'll know even a lot more yeah. as well and then realizing how much I don't know
0: as no, well. Uh, listen, I'm conscious I'm taking up loads of your time, but if I, can I mm. ask two more things sure. and then we'll... And then we'll and we'll call it a date so uh, what, again I want to touch on the orb thing as well I'm the biggest orb fan also, oh, been, so that was a, it was a beautiful thing what was can you sort of talk me through the time when you discovered that what was you know, that kind of music and and the orb in particular and other things were going, where were you? What was what was going on? How did you come across it?
1: Well yeah. Well in New York in in the States we didn't have a rave scene per se. And our club scene was very different. Our club scene was well at least the club scene that I was part of was much more soul-based African-American, Latino. Uh, That was kind of the area that I was in. There was kind of a smaller rave scene that had to do with drum and bass as well and techno, which was a lot more, it was a more white, to be honest. Um, But me and my friends, there was so much going on in New York City uh around in the early 90s so aside from going to the parties like the loft there was like an after hours place called save the robots that you had to know where it was it was around the corner from the loft i would also go to the shelter uh there was louis vega was doing um some factory bar there's a lot of big clubs small clubs parties after hours spots illegal places like robots there's a lot of Giant Steps was starting as well. Um, so that whole kind of acid jazz scene, which we now call acid jazz. But all these different things were kind of happening, and I was going out a lot. So I was like early 20s and going out all the time. And for and, and then loads of like people taking over down studios and doing their own parties. Uh, so that's kind of where my head was then to be a group of us just kind of going out all the time. And then friend a friend of mine had two decks, and I remember him having the Orb, as well and go back to his house at the end of the night and play records and that would come on So it was an after hours thing but also David would play it too because his party went from 12 midnight to 12 noon so you know at 11 in the morning the orb would go on or Jimi Hendrix or whatever.
0: so one thing i wanted to ask you was about jazz mm. uh in particular and again from the orb session that i came to for classic album sundays and you and youth and alex really went into alice coltrane oh, in yeah. particular she which was that favorites. was a hell of a thing she's
1: one of my favorites They have like so many of her albums
0: yeah i mean i don't know enough about alice coltrane but that made me think it was just immediately like that was one of the most abiding memories of that night for me it was just oh. like oh okay this is i need i need to do more That's into an Alice this
1: coltrane record too she did with carlos santana oh wow i just love that cover
0: um it's very psychedelic. yeah it's
1: amazing it's a great album um uh, yeah well you know i was introduced to jazz when i was 16 years old working at strawberries as i had told you before and the assistant manager was jeff cohen and he was a jazz fanatic so, this is the thing that's great about working in a record shop because every person that worked there, they were all at, most of them were adults. I was still a kid. But you don't work there for the money. You work there because you're obsessed with music and everyone has their own obsession. So, one guy, it was Paisley Pop and Psychedelic 60s. That's how I got into that. Jeff was a jazz aficionado and he had great taste. So, he, like, made a tape of Charles Mingus the Black Saint and the Sinner Lady which I later bought on vinyl which is still one of my top ten albums Um, took me to see Chico Freeman and I just started to get into jazz Uh, but I have to say I don't feel I'm a jazz aficionado at all like I know certain artists and certain albums and I know how much I don't know because uh, I it's something that I tend to listen to more and more like I guess it's another vista for me. I, I probably I know more about jazz than I do about classical, but I still feel like I just don't know. Like when you're a, a jazz, an uber jazz fan, you know, you know so much, you know so much. And I, I, I definitely my specialty is still rock, pop, electronic, and whatever, uh, soul, soul music. It's probably still my forte. And jazz, I don't feel like I'm an expert at all, but I think I know a lot about certain artists and Alice Coltrane is someone who I really follow, John Coltrane, Miles Davis, I mean, these are the big guys, aren't they? And and gals, I should say. Uh, and I, I know more than your average listener would know, but I do not feel in any shape or form that I'm an expert on jazz or even on Coltrane. Yeah, sure. So I, I think you know when you're an expert you know oh and they were playing with that one in that session Da da I just I know them more by the albums yeah sure so but it's said again we're doing London Jazz Fest again this year uh we did it last year we did a Love Supreme with Dennis Baptiste who's a saxophonist um who did a whole album of Coltrane covers called The Late Train it was all later Coltrane stuff it's a great album by the way And he was my special guest. But of course, he knows John Coltrane inside and out. So it was great having him. I would know the right questions to ask, but he would know the right answers. So I don't feel like I'm an expert at all. But this year we're doing Time Out, Dave Brubeck's Time Out, because it's, well, it will be 60 next year. It came out in 1959 one of the biggest selling jazz albums especially for its time it was a crossover hit but i have his son darius so that'll be really interesting wow. so uh you know i know a fair amount about that album also one of my favorite album covers great artwork mm-hmm. i used to l- i love the artwork the modern art crossover you know modern art meeting modern jazz yeah. in the late 50s amazing um but I, again, because of Classic album Sundays, I have to learn more about it now. So that's great. Definitely.
0: That's amazing. Well, I'm to ask you the final question, mm. if that's all right. Mm-hmm. And so do you think there's anything, any one defining thing or more than one defining thing that links all of the music that you're into?
1: Yeah, I think there is a purity of spirit and expression. Um, I think there is something that has a real integrity to it. It could be anything from Devo to Alice Coltrane to Nirvana. The people that have made the records that I really love and in the records in particular, they weren't made for commercial purposes, even if they even if it did well, but I mean, I was even your Cindy Lauper and the album She's So Unusual, you have some great songs on there. In fact, you know, Time After Time, I can't remember if it's that album, but you know, all the jazz guys, Miles Davis covered it. So she, it was a beautifully written, and I, there are there are there's some throwaway pop that I do love that might not have um, much to it. But overall, I think everything that I really deeply love has, yeah, a real kind of integrity. Like it had to be made. It had to come from somewhere and there's a real, real pure feeling behind it. It just had to come out.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so uh, much. I re- right. really appreciate it. Oh, Thank you so lovely. much oh, Pleasure.
1: Pleasure. Uh, that was fun.
0: Colleen Cosmo Murphy there. Huge thanks to Colleen for her time and her insight. And what a beautiful answer to the standard Threadwork question. If you enjoyed that conversation, then perhaps check out other episodes with guests in the archive. There's Jeffrey Lewis and Eden Blackman so far. And I'm hoping to be able to speak to more guests in the new year. The other episodes aren't too bad either, I promise. So give them a lash too. I'll wrap up with the usual admin. Please consider rating, reviewing, subscribing to and sharing Threadwork. It'd be just lovely if you could. Check out the episode notes for links to various things, including a Spotify playlist of the music contained in this episode, links to purchase the music played, as well as other useful things too, including Colleen's Mixcloud, which is full of great mixes, often of a psychedelic nature. But that's about all we have time for, for this instalment of Threadwork. Huge thanks as always go to Producer Bod for Production Wizardry. Thanks again to Cosmo, and thanks of course to you for listening. I've been Ross Cale, and I'll see you in two weeks' time for the 18th instalment of Threadwork. Cheers.